The text for our message is Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amen. Been blessed so far with our service. Um, the uh, reflection on the beauty of the snow and uh, our praise really focusing on the Holy Spirit and uh, the, uh, tithes and the, the prayer, congregational prayer, tithes and offerings, and then having our expert in the law read about this passage. Thank you, Diana. Uh, we're continuing our second sermon series of the year, the current one being based on the phrase, labor prompted by love, uh, found in our church key verses in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, 2 to 3. Uh, we've centered on a cluster of themes uh, related to love being demonstrated by people to other people. Uh, of course, the best kind of love is modeled for, best kind of love modeled for and directly experienced by us is God's divine love. Um, so the first message uh, of the three-parter was about Jacob's love uh, for Rachel, which made the time of his labor fly by. Last week, we looked at Solomon's uh, love for God, his father David, and the Israelites as seen in his devoted building of the Lord's temple, a place of repentance and divine love. Uh, in any consideration of love for others, um, I believe this uh, remarkable parable of the Good Samaritan is a must study. Uh, the parable is a poignant story about unexpected compassion coming from one individual to another. Uh, it pierces the heart uh, because the normal obligations of love uh, turn out to be uh, actually deficient, quite deficient. Um, and a customary expression of animosity or at best indifference is subverted uh, into kindness and, and mercy. Uh, so although I've spoken on this passage numerous times, as uh, recently as I think 2017, I wanted to look uh, at it once again in this series. I always seem to find new impressions each time we cover it, and I trust today will be no exception. Uh, my title, sermon title, 
is Love's Labor Given. Um, it's an early uh, Shakespearean play. Uh, mm, the title comes, I, I'm using it from an early Shakespearean play, Love's Labor Lost. Um, a comedy about how the king of Navarre and the three and three of his nobles uh, try to swear off the company of women uh, for three years, but uh, he ends up falling in love with the princess of France and her ladies. Uh, the play ends abruptly with the women being summoned back uh, to France because of the death of the king. Hence, I think the title of the play suggests that all of the labor that they put into courting the women comes uh, to naught. Now, another contemporary play, which <clears throat> some scholars uh, also attribute to Shakespeare, but others do not, is called Love's Labors One, uh, suggesting that it might have been a sequel to Love's Labors Lost. Uh, no copies, however, have survived, so nothing can be verified. I wanted to use the idea of Love's Labor. Right, love's labor, being uh, directed somewhere. Um, in our parable, this expenditure of love is gifted by the Samaritan uh, to the Jewish robbery victim. Uh, it was a costly and compassionate labor, but a shining example of what it means to both love a neighbor and to love as a neighbor. Uh, the parable is prompted uh, as a response slash illustration of Jesus uh, to a query concerning the two greatest commandments given by God. The first command is uh, loving God with everything we have. The second flows directly from it in that God's love for all people governs or guides what we should do with our uh, receipt or our experience of God's love. In a nutshell, we should love others as God has loved us. And we see this marvelous pairing, uh, love God, love your neighbor, uh, commandments here in this uh, parable. My plan is to organize uh, today's message into three sections by examining how the parable shows uh, different viewpoints, different approaches, different understandings. So I wanna talk about the views from the parable on humanity. How does different characters in the story think about humanity, think about human beings? The different approaches or understandings of what love looks like. And then what it means to be a neighbor. Are there some kind of, uh, is there a development? Is there a progress? Is there a learn, learned a lesson about uh, neighborliness? Uh, these are certainly huge topics in and of themselves, so I'll try to limit myself to what these verses might uh, say about it, uh, and there'll be some overlap as well. Uh, to start off, uh, I'd like to share my typical explication uh, of this passage. Uh, I always see, pardon the pun, this passage in terms of perspective. In particular, how did the various parties in the story view the man, view the man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, this guy on the road to Jericho. How did the different characters see this man? Now, I plan to go through this fairly quickly because uh, some of you have heard this before, maybe even multiple times. So the question, how did each view the traveler? I'll talk about the robbers first. They saw him as an object. 
the priest and the Levite, they saw the man as a stranger. And the Samaritan, he saw the man as himself. Okay, so the first viewers, so to speak, were the robbers. They saw this man as an object, a thing, a bag of money at best. They didn't care about his history or his identity or his family. They just wanted the material possessions that he was carrying on his person. They treated him as a piece of meat and left him for dead. You know, we struggle a lot with objectification in our society. We look at each other as subjects, I mean, as objects and, and things and, and things we can get rather than as full human beings made in the image of God. For example, in the job market, there is a constant concern. Am I being objectified for my skills or value added to a company or an employment situation uh, or in the church? Am I valued solely for what I can do or for who I am as a child of God? The Levite and the priest uh, viewed this traveler as a human being, but I think minimally, they saw him as a stranger. Uh, they construed their interactions with him or prospective interactions with him in terms of prior relationship. Because he was not a family member or an acquaintance, they did not feel that they had to help the man. If there was a personal relationship before, they may have felt either pity or an obligation. And even though they saw him, right, the text tells us both of them saw him, they didn't see their connection to him as a fellow human being because they had no prior relationship with a man. They felt that they could treat him as someone else's problem. And our society is chock full of this perspective. We see many people in need, but unless we actually know the person, or are required to help them, perhaps, uh, we rarely do, right? We, we, we don't really help strangers. We don't really pay attention to strangers. You know, God knows our lives are busy enough as it is. And the two individuals in Jewish society whom we would expect to be the most likely to offer help, they avoid the mugging victim altogether. Uh, the usual rationale offered is that contact with the dead body would have defiled them and made them unfit, at least for a certain prescribed time to fulfill their professional or religious duties. So they scooch on over uh, to the other side of the road and pass by. Uh, surprisingly, it's the third uh, party, the Samaritan man, and not his fellow Jewish countrymen who show com compassion to this traveler and provides uh, a succor and aid. Now, how did the Samaritan view the traveler? I think we can express it in several ways. He saw him as a fellow human being, saw him as a neighbor, right? saw him as a brother even. Um, and of course, right, as himself. He saw him as himself, right? Now, there was no prior relationship, right? You, would argue, you could argue that there was actually an antithetical relationship. Right? They weren't supposed to get along, a Samaritan and a, and a Jew. He didn't know him from Adam, as we say. But somehow the Samaritan sees through all of the surface differences and he sees at bottom who this person is. Right? And he sees, I think, a reflection of himself. He's a fellow traveler. This could happen to him, the Samaritan. Right? He put himself in this man's shoes. And if he was in that situation, lying um, beaten to a bloody pulp, and bleeding out on the ground. What would you want others to do if you saw another person walking by? What would that 
Samaritan want if he was in that same situation? Well, I think he would want someone to come and help. You know, if he feels his life uh, ebbing away, you would want someone to try to, you know, comfort you and bandage you and, and take you to the hospital. And that's exactly what the Samaritan did, you know. So love, right, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, sees itself uh, in the neighbor. I could, that could be me. That could be me. I have to love because I need, I want that same kind of love. Now, I always mention what compassion means, right? Literally. The root meaning is passion is suffer, come is with. So compassion means to suffer with. Right? So, you know, I always talk about you know, walking in another person's shoes, empathy, compassion, right? Uh, Walking around in someone else's skin, right? As um, it says in To Kill a Mockingbird, that is the heart of neighborly love. Okay, so that's my first kind of survey of the views. How did the different characters view this man, right? As an object, right? as a stranger, or as yourself? Um, that to me is the heart of the kind of the understanding what the passage uh, is saying. I wanna move on to the second kind of thing about love. Right? What does the passage say or what do the different actions tell us about love? So I wanted to uh, kind of go through it and uh, is it up? Yeah, <laughs> I said here I see kind of love described in terms of codification, like, you know, making a, like a code or, you know, a, a, a list. Uh, love is labor, that's of course the the main idea here, and then love is mercy, which I'll talk about at the end. So I know the word codification probably seems very out of place uh, in the same sentence as love, maybe out of place in this world, like nobody uses the word codification, right? But I selected it because you know me. Um, it, it actually, I thought it describes uh, how the expert in the law seemed to be categorizing love right? to him. Loving God, loving neighbor was a legal matter, right? Because they were commands, right? The two greatest ones, in fact, given by God. Uh, this guy wanted to ensure that he complied with the law. We might even say that's how he approached life. He labored at understanding the legal codes. He had become an expert in interpretation and probably committed to memory much of the Mosaic code. And in his conversation with Jesus, I think he reveals this very mindset. He couches his first question in terms of, you know, imperative. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But it looks like he already knew the answer to the question he poses. Right? It was more of a showing off of his expertise and knowledge rather than an authentic inquiry. He had his ready-made response uh, to make himself look pretty good in front of the popular young rabbi. When Jesus seems to cut the discourse a little short, verse 29 tells us that he wanted to justify himself. So he kind of, you know, stretches out the conversation. He wanted to, you know, demonstrate his superior knowledge of the law and put his understanding of legal niceties uh, on display. Love was more of an academic question or a legal theory residing in his mind, in the mind, more than it was an expression of the heart or a demonstration of action. So, yeah, I think he was trying to look at love as an obligation or, or a duty. What must I do? Who is my neighbor? 
right? And I would add questions like, when must I love? What is the definition of a neighbor that would trigger my duty to love? When, I, when would I be breaking God's love if I failed to love? I think you get the picture. The idea of love was um, this, this kind of legal aspect, I think, runs throughout this parable, actually. Right? There's a criminal conduct of the robbers. Uh, there's a ceremonial purity, the issues of the priest and the Levite. Right? They conclude we don't owe a duty to the injured man. And you know, if you think about duty and, and, and like requirements, uh, I think... This idea of labor and of occupation and of work, even livelihood, I think it comes uh, into play. Uh, what the people did for a living, uh, it kind of defined who they were and then our expectations of them. So the traveler was probably a businessman, right? Going from one major city uh, to another business trip. Uh, the robbers, in a strange sense, they were professionals as well. They knew the uh, travel patterns and they waylaid uh, passers-by. Uh, they were very efficient at what they did, right? They were brutal in their abuse of the man's body and then disabusing him of his possessions. And then, of course, the Levite and the priest, they're also identified by their occupations, which actually were hereditary. But you're born into the Levite tribe, and one of your jobs was to take care of the temple or be a representative of God in, in the town all over Israel. The priests had even greater responsibility by being assigned a role in the sacrificial system. They had um, um, judicial duties as well when it came to ceremonial cleanliness, even some healing components. They were kind of like, uh, had all these kind of skills. Yeah. But they avoided this man because um, they had determined that because he was probably a corpse, they did not want to make, come into contact with him because that would affect uh, their job. Right? So you imagine this uh, being driven always by, do I have to, um, what's required? You know, these kind of uh, questions, I feel like um, that really uh, guts love. It really strips love of all of its, uh, really the, the blessings, uh, Right? And, and the, the duty of love, when we just look at it that way, it can feel very tedious and uh, restrictive, very tiresome. The codification of love certainly contrasts starkly with the labor of love, the voluntary, the joyous, the sacrificial labor of love that we see in the Samaritan's action, actions. Um, love takes work. Love takes sacrifice, love takes resources, love can be consuming, right? You are consenting to be consumed by the beloved, by the person you're loving. Now, love doesn't measure out tiny little pinches of how much you're going to give. You don't really hold back. It can be downright wasteful um, at times. You're not really thinking about allocating. You're not thinking, oh, you know, this is mile 14. At mile 27, there might be another sick guy, so I'm going to hold back some of you know, the, uh, the oil and wine. You know, he's just focusing on this one person doing whatever uh, it takes. The Samaritan put himself at risk. This could have been a con. The Samaritan could have contracted a communicable disease, right? We know that so well now. Um, at minimum, he had to expend a lot of time and a lot of resources to help him. But he was willing to do it, right? He was willing to apply what he had 
from his heart, from his hands, uh, to assist this uh, victim, this poor man. Uh, if you recall, in the middle of last year, um, I shared, I passed on some insights on this passage that I heard from uh, Pastor Frank Williams. He's been a guest speaker, a pastor in the Bronx. So in the context of racial uh, injustice, uh, he was speaking at a prayer meeting and he spoke about uh, care competence, care competence. Uh, he talked about how this, the Good Samaritan came to this man and basically performed triage, right? He bandaged his wounds, poured on all the wine, oil and wine, you know, as an antiseptic and also as a salve. So Pastor Frank was arguing or making the point that you have to first cover, soothe, and disinfect the wound before you can move, before you can transport this guy, before he can get to the next stage. And so he was talking about when people are hurting, you can't demand that you act normal, you act healthy you know, when you were bruised and battered and bleeding. That's, the Samaritan uh, saw that, right? When he came to the man and he helped him, right? He was able to do and um, expend resources and time to help this man, not only in, in the immediate sense, but, you know, this initial step of commitment uh, leads him into deeper involvement. He, he realized, I can't just leave this guy here, can't just walk home, back home to Jerusalem. I have to take him, right? He needs to recover uh, so he takes him to lodging, he guarantees the man's uh, expenses, right, and says that he'll return, he'll follow up. Somebody discovered that two silver coins could probably have covered two months of lodging, right? That's the extent, right, and more that this man was willing uh, to do. So love as labor, right, love as something you give freely, in response to being moved in the heart, in response to suffering with a person. That's the uh, shining example, like I said, uh, that this Samaritan uh, teaches us. And let me quickly cover the last uh, view of what love is uh, through what the expert in the law responds to Jesus' question at the end, verse 37. You know, he asks, uh, Jesus asks, you know, um, about it. He, he says that uh, love is shown through mercy. mercy. And that's kind of uh, the, the overtone here, right? Is it overtone or undertone? I don't know. That, that's kind of something that covers this thing. The fact that Jesus selected a Samaritan to represent what a uh, loving neighbor looks like, I think that was significant. Right? The hero of the story was actually an enemy. Uh, Jews and Samaritans did not associate uh, with each other due to ethnic strife and disdain. Uh, the Jew often discriminated against the Samaritan, considered the, the, the latter group like dogs. Uh, but he's the one in need, and the Samaritan is the one, you know, above and beyond the, the Jewish um, establishment, right, the institutional leaders. The Samaritan is the one who is acting and who is giving, right? So uh, the expert in the law interprets this as an act of mercy. Right? He didn't have to do it. He was in a position of advantage, but he extended mercy. He had pity and compassion, and he sacrificed in order for this man. Again, Pastor Frank talked about this. He said, 
you know, in our day, this, this story is applicable because it was the act of one person who had or had received cultural bias from another, right? So there should have been no exchange of love or mercy, but because of his, you know, love of neighbor, he was able to associate with this man, help him long, short term and long term. Again, how the labor of love, right, is not only uh, kind of transformative to those in need, but as we exercise it, it in turn helps us. Okay, so let me move, let me finish with uh, the final kind of area of, of surveying uh, varying views, right? And I want to focus on this uh, question of, uh, of, I'm calling it the neighbor question, right? How does the passage and the book ending dialogue of Jesus and the law expert speak to the question about the identity of the neighbor? So if you recall in the beginning, the expert law wants to justify himself and he wants to like show off, let's say. And so he poses the question, well, who is my neighbor? Define neighbor, Jesus, is, is what he says. Jesus tells a parable. And at the conclusion, what does Jesus say? Right? In verses 36 to 37, that exchange, it's not who is my neighbor, but the question is flipped around. Are you a neighbor? Right? So if we use like a sentence or a grammatical, instead of focusing on the grammatical object, like tell me who the neighbor is and I'll go love them. Jesus says, no, it, you have to first consider, right? You have to first introspect, first understand, first test whether you understand what it means to be the grammatical subject. The, are you a neighbor? Are you a neighborly person? Do you have love? neighborly love uh, in you, right? You know, and I think that's so kind of perfect, the vintage Jesus to not only tell this story, but pretty much put these, you know, inauthentic, disingenuous uh, testers, questioners, uh, put, put them on their heads, right? Again, I think this guy, uh, the, the expert wanted to kind of, um, focus on a definition of neighbor in order to, with an eye towards limitation, maybe narrow who he has to love. Right? Again, this duty question, we've talked about that. So that he's able to maintain, to be able to adhere to the command more stringently and successfully. Again, probably to puff up his pride and, and, and his track record. And that would be self-justification. But through the story, right, Jesus shoots it back to the inquirer, right? So the crux of the matter is not, who's my neighbor? Point him out, point her out, and I'll go do what I, my duty. But Jesus says, no, before you figure out who the neighbor is, or in fact, you'll know who your neighbor is when you, right, in your, in your personhood, in your character, in your who you are, when you realize, when you ask that question, am I a neighbor, right? Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of a robber? Yeah, and I think that is very kind of 
hard and challenging. The, the standard, the stakes are, 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 lift, are higher now. Right? It's on us to act. The question, the command, love your neighbor as yourself, is not necessarily just um, give me a list, give me some requirements, and I'll check them off. I'll love this person and that group and do it on Tuesdays and Fridays and you know, I, I'll, 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 you know, have a, uh, I'll keep a log and I'll show God, I'll show my pastor, I'll show my, my small group, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm loving my neighbor. Uh, Jesus says, uh, actually, right, it's not about, um, you know, the person or the group receiving your love. That's a byproduct of a deeper, more fundamental, more central, essential question is, yeah, are you full of God's love for your neighbor? It's a personal challenge. It's not about achievement. It's not about, you know, let's say it's not about doing. Doing will come if you right, become a neighbor. Yeah. So, you know, love's labor can never be lost because it's not about the recipient. You know, it can only be withheld or given. Right? That's why I kind of try to say love's labor's given. Right? That's what this passage uh, teaches us. So, this uh, so-called religious expert on love, religious love, um, doesn't seem to understand that, at least uh, in the beginning. Right? He doesn't understand that the point is about us becoming a loving person. When we become neighbors, right, by our actions, we you end up kind of creating neighbors. It's another way to, to think about it. And neighborliness is not just I live next door or I see that person all the time. This is such a tenuous connection, right? This guy was far from being neighbor by any definition, the, the, the traveler. But he just happened to be on the same road at the same time. But by his love, right, the Samaritan created uh, neighborliness, right? So it's about what we carry around, right? That love that we carry around. That's what the focus should be, not about, you know, give me uh, the bullet points, the tasks, the, the, uh, the duties that we have to do. Yeah. You know, creating relationships is hard, but loving people are hard, is hard. I think it's compounded because we make it a task. We make it a duty, an obligation. We make it a checklist. But when you are become a loving person, when I become a person of love, right, that changes the game. It's not no longer about, I need to build something with you so I can get something back from you. No, it just kind of, it just spills out. <laughs> it just kind of overflows for me. It, it is a, production, a natural result of the love that has uh, entered uh, my love, uh, my heart through, uh, through God, right? You know, this personal development, this character uh, progress, this becoming somebody who loves, right? I feel like if we can focus on that, uh, it would, yeah, just um, have much more kind of uh, impact 
I'd have more people would be uh, blessed. I feel like that's what the Samaritan shows us. Like, um, you, know, you know, when you look at his actions, um, I think we tend to think that, well, this guy's, uh, you know, he, he's, he must be like good at, he must be like a safe person uh, to be with. Like a wonderful guy that, you know, would, would be able to um, risk um, these kind of uh, interactions and be willing to give. You know, there's no way that the Jewish man's going to reciprocate. He's not going to get paid back. It's not an investment. It's just an outflow of who he is, right? So he's probably a wonderful husband, right? He's probably a great citizen, maybe a, a great, a really good friend, right? Yeah, somehow, uh, because he is a neighbor, he because he's uh, got that kind of love, right? Because he has. Uh, we see that kind of, um, we, we get that kind of impression uh, from this person that this, yeah, he, there is much more to him than just this action. I feel like our focus is, is very much, my focus is very much like the uh, expert in the law, right? I'm, I'm so focused on what I do um, and less uh, burdened or less, uh, you know, analytical or examining of who I am. But um, I think this passage, although it's about action, right? We could say love needs to be expressed concretely instead of just theoretically or, you know, uh, just, just be, um, you know, talk about it. We actually have to do. Um, there's something about who this Samaritan is that I think resonates uh, in a very loud way uh, for me today. All right, let me conclude with another uh, something I read, um, not sports related. <laughs> it's been uh, like that for several weeks, but um, it's actually from like uh, the automotive, <laughs> I don't know if it's the industry, but the automotive world. Uh, there was uh, an article on um, Apple News about a, a retired surgeon, right? Out in the UK uh, who, um, he was a retired surgeon, also had electrical engineering knowledge. Um, he was into like uh, Land Rovers, you know, the car, uh, the type of car. And he always wanted this, um, this by a company made, called Tickford. He wanted a 1949 Land Rover, right? That was, I think, used in Africa, limited places. There's only a 641 of this particular uh, model that was made and he found one and so he bought it. And then he spent time, of course, stripping it down, putting in new parts, you know, and then troubleshooting, uh, spending a lot of money, you know, not, not, not like, you know, replacing the car, but just trying to restore it to its original condition the best he could. And the title of the um, article is, after an eight-year labor of love, this Tickford Land Rover is totally unrecognizable. Right? So... What he needed to do to get it from the condition that it was, it was already in pretty good condition, he thought. Um, it took him eight years, right? And it took him, you know, thousands of pounds, maybe 10,000 pounds, you know. Um, but, you know, to him, uh, bringing this car to, you know, restoring it and, and, and owning it, you know, it really was uh, kind of a joyful uh, expenditure, 
right? And, and if you, it's a very long article and they go into so much detail about like, you know, pistons and, you know, different types of paint and wood and, and the break kind of discussion was like, I just got lost. I couldn't finish it because it was just too detailed uh, and stuff. But uh, it really demonstrated, I think, so much of what, um, right, uh, this kind of the, the car version of the Samaritan's actions, right? I think you would, you would agree with me that um, hopefully human beings are more valuable than cars <laughs> or anything that we could do. But just that perspective, just that approach, just that willingness to expend labor, I was yeah, moved by it. Uh, it concludes by saying, I'll never sell it. For me, it's the perfect Series 1 Land Rover, as well as an important piece of history. Without the Tickford, there may ne never have been any, uh, th there may have been no Range Rover. It's important to um, preserve that. Okay, so thus concludes our three messages on the labor of love. Let's pray. Labor prompted by love. Um, I, I tried to give um, passages from different um, that, that looked at love and, and showed love in different ways. Um, Jacob's love certainly is uh, very inspirational. Solomon's devotion, likewise. Um, I think it's a Samaritan that um, really kind of brings this home for me. Yeah, and uh, not only in his how his love was expressed, but how his love embodied, right? how he, his, his person, his character, it embodied this neighborly love. So let's have some time of prayer uh, as we uh, uh, respond to God's word in our lives.